Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the Toxidome, where your friendly neighborhood toxicologist clashes with poisons and venoms in a battle for life and death. Welcome back to another edition of the Toxidome. We're going to jump right in with Dr. Kathy Kopecht, our Toxicology Division Director here at Carolina's Medical Center, for a review of the most common toxidromes. Take it away, Kopecht. That leads us to the last part of our talk today, which is recognizing those toxic syndromes, okay, or toxidromes, as you may have heard of them before. So the ones we're going to talk about today are anticholinergic, cholinergic, sedative hypnotic, opioid, sympathomimetics, withdrawal from ethanol or sedative hypnotics, and withdrawal from opiates. Anticholinergic. Woo! These are going to be people who are blind as a bat, hot as a hair, mad as a hatter, red as a beet, dry as a bone, or tacky as a leisure suit. That's my personal favorite. Some people will say that they have bowel and bladder that lose their tone and the heart runs alone as well. Some of those funny little sayings for it. These are going to be people who kind of come in and we classically think of this when we think of our anticholinergic drugs like our Jimson weed or Datura exposures or scopolamine or atropine or diphenhydramine potentially. So clinically, looking at that, they're going to have tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, big dilated pupils. They're going to be dry. This is a reason to really check if they're dry or not. Feel that groin area. Feel those axilla, okay? These people should be dry. They're going to have decreased bowel sounds. They're going to have urinary retention. And this is probably the one that people miss the most is that urinary retention. They'll be talking about these person. They're getting more and more agitated. They don't know what's wrong. They're giving them benzos, more and more agitated. And then they put a Foley in, and the person puts out three liters, and suddenly they're much calmer. Well, you would be agitated too if you felt like your bladder was going to rupture. So don't forget about the urinary retention. They also can have flush coloring, and they have altered uh, hallucinations or confusion. Drugs that do this, antihistamines, some of our antipsychotics, our antidepressants, anti-Parkinson meds. We already talked about scopolamine or atropine um, or jimsonweed or datura. Treatment of our anticholinergic toxidrome, sedation being the biggest one out there, okay? Getting control of them, benzodiazepines is usually kind of our standard of care for their agitation and their external autonomic instability they have, good IV fluids controlling their temperature, and then people will talk a lot about physostigmine being the classic antidote. Physostigmine is a reversible inducer or inhibitor of acetylcholinesterase. So it's kind of short-acting. We usually give about 0.5 or 1 milligrams IV over five minutes, but when it does work, it is kind of cool to watch. So the patient's very confused. You give it to them. Suddenly they are conversing with you and acting totally normal. But it is pretty short-acting, so unfortunately they'll go back to usually a little bit of a delirious state. And it was something that we often stopped giving for a little while or had a lot of contraindications because we saw things like bradydysrhythmias with it. It could cause seizures if they also took a sodium channel blocking agent or a TCA overdose as well. Current contraindications are going to be things like bronchospasm, AV block, or bradydysrhythmias on these patients. Or if you know they have a sodium channel blocking agent on board, probably should stay away from the physostigmine. There was just recently a paper done that showed that physostigmine actually is pretty safe. I would argue that if you are going to give it, you give it slowly, you're at the bedside kind of monitoring the patient for those effects. All right, the cholinergic toxidrome. So this is the dumbbells or your sludge or the killer bees. So we've got diarrhea, defecation, urination, meiosis or muscle weakness, bronchorrhea, bradycardia, emesis, lacrimation, salivation or sweating. I like to think about it. If you've got a place that liquid can come out of, it's going to come out. So you got water, water everywhere. Our killer bees are going to be bronchorrhea, bronchospasm, and bradycardia. This is classically what we think of when we think of our organophosphate or a pesticide exposure. 
The blood pressure and the heart rate in these presentations can be high or low. It's not classically one thing or the other. So just kind of keeping that in mind that those two can fluctuate a little bit. We do tend to see an increased respiratory rate with that uh, bronchorrhea and well going on there. We tend to have a normal temperature, constricted pupils, uh, increased bowel sounds, diaphoresis, and we can get fasciculations here. Carbamates, organophosphates, pesticides, our nerve agents, and some mushrooms can give you this clinical picture. If you want to get a good example of what this looks like, I would encourage you to just Google it. There are some sad but good examples of uh, cholinergic toxidromes that happened from some of the bombings in Syria in the past five years that you can see. And if that's too much for you and you want to just watch something that's a, a video or a TV, season five of Homeland, they do sarin gas on one of their own. So it's a nice example of how Peter Quinn, unfortunately, gets exposed to a nerve agent. And I think that overall it does a, a good example of kind of what that looks like. It's a little bit heartbreaking, though, if you're a Peter Quinn fan. It, it did kind of break me. I had all the feels. So how do we treat the cholinergic toxidrome? Supportive care, decontamination, kind of being our first ones we go through, airway support as needed. And then people talk a lot about atropine or 2PAM or prilidoxine. Atropine is actually an anticholinergic drug, right? When we think about it, we just talked about that. And the goal of atropine is not really to fix the cholinergic problem in front of you, but it's to dry up those secretions, dry up all that extra fluid that you have. Really, we're going to give this until we atropinize somebody or they have clear breath sounds and they're no longer having difficulty breathing secondary to fluid overload, trying to get them dry, almost getting them a little bit anticholinergic to some extent. We dose atropine usually in an escalating fashion. People might start to say, hey, I've got a milligram and then I'm going to give two milligrams and then four milligrams. And these people can often require large amounts of atropine to get their secretions to be dry. The second thing we talk about in treatment here is 2PAM or prilidoxime. Prilidoxime is actually what some people would tell you is the antidote to a cholinergic toxidrome. Basically what it does is it helps us reactivate the acetylcholinesterase that has been blocked by the organophosphate or pesticide. So it kind of knocks off that binding there and it allows that acetylcholinesterase to be functional again and then break down the excessive acetylcholine that you have in the neuromuscular junction which is causing our clinical symptoms. Sedative hypnotics. So this one makes a lot of sense, right? These people are going to be uh, sedated. They're going to have confusion, delirium. They might have double vision or diplopia. They could have slurred speech, ataxia, have some nystagmus, or potentially be in a coma. Classic drugs that do this are going to be our barbiturates, our benzodiazepines, ethanol, GHB, anticonvulsants. Treatment here is mostly supportive care, airway protection as we need to, and the good old tincture of time. Some people will talk about using flumazenol here as well. So flumazenol has been talked about an antidote for benzodiazepine overdoses. It unfortunately can cause seizures that are somewhat unresponsive to benzodiazepines in a person who is a chronic benzodiazepine user. So that's why it's kind of not gotten very much love or people don't use it as frequently uh, because we do worry about its ability to induce seizures that then you can't potentially control. People I might give flumazenol to, the kid who got into mom or dad's benzodiazepine, not a chronic user, or somebody that perhaps I might have given a little too much benzo in the ED to, and I'm trying to protect their airway or avoid them buying plastic of any form. If you choose to give it on an overdose, again, slow dosing and staying at the bedside and watching it will probably be the best thing for you to help avoid any seizure activity. Opioids. So this is very common nowadays. Everybody knows this toxidrome. we got that altered mental status, meiosis, unresponsive, slow, shallow breathing, bradycardia, decreased bowel sounds, hypothermia, and this is our narcotic pain medications or our heroin. How do we treat this? Oxygen, airway management, assisting ventilations, intubation as needed, supportive care, and then we talk about naloxone. Most people talk about titrating doses of naloxone. 
often you read about 0.4 milligrams IV, kind of escalating up. Some people even take that lower and say you should start with 0.04 milligrams IV and then slowly escalate up. EMS or pre-hospital, a lot of times they give two milligrams, you know, kind of give a, a larger dose up front to get control. But my goal when I give you naloxone is not to put you in withdrawal. It's not trying to get you to be up and angry and swinging at me. My goal is to have you breathe on your own. So nice, slow kind of escalating doses to get them to be comfortable and breathe on their own is ideal. It's also important to note that naloxone's half-life is really about 30 to 60 minutes. So if they took anything besides heroin, it's probably going to wear off before their other opiate did, which means they may resedate, and you need to worry about having to possibly redose their naloxone. Sympathomimetics, my personal favorite. So this is going to have restlessness, agitation, hypertension, tachycardia, tachypnea, hyperthermia, dilated pupils, diaphoresis, be hallucinated or disoriented. They're going to have excessive speech or motor activity. Kind of like me, but I just have excessive speech and motor activity on baseline, guys. So drugs that do this, amphetamines, cocaine, pseudoephedrine or ephedrine, the bath salts, caffeine potentially here. So these are going to be our most common kind of agents that can do this. So how do we treat this? Sedation, temperature control, heart rate control, IV fluids, monitoring for side effects down the road like rhabdo or lactic acid buildup or elevated CPKs because of the increased muscle activity. And benzodiazepines are going to be key here. Lots and lots of general use of benzos to get control of their autonomic instability and getting their temperature down. So cooling is also going to be key. So for those of you who were not born in the 80s, there was this great commercial when Pablo Escobar and his cocaine empire started kind of crossing over to the United States and Reagan started the don't do drugs magical kind of advertisement and the D.A.R.E. program started. And they had this lovely commercial where they had an egg and they said, this is your brain. And then they put it in a frying pan and it fried. And they said, this is your brain on drugs. And so sure, it probably is your brain on drugs. But I think more importantly in that is that's your brain on drugs that make you hyperthermic. So think about the heat there, right? So heat is what kills these people. Killing those brain cells, I can't get them back. So important that we get temperature control in these patients. All right, what about our withdrawal states? So withdrawal from ethanol or sedificnotics. Clinically, this is going to look like somebody who's hypertensive, tachycardic. They might be hyperthermic as well. Sweating, increased bowel sounds, big dilated pupils. They could be agitated, disoriented, having hallucinations. And they're going to develop eventually tremors and seizure activity. So how do we treat this? Benzodiazepines is really the ideal agent here, guys. There's a lot of protocols out there, the CWAP protocol, things like that. But if you look at the literature, diazepam is really the benzodiazepine of choice because it's got active metabolites. And so it's going to help us self-taper. But in the end, it's benzodiazepines, generous use of benzodiazepines. Good supportive care, temperature control, and some people talk about thiamine for those chronic alcoholics as well. It's important to note that this is a withdrawal state that messes with GABA. When you start messing with GABA, you start talking about things that potentially can kill you. GABAs are inhibitory neurotransmitter. Glutamates are excitatory neurotransmitter. The problem is when we take away a lot of inhibition, we got a lot of glutamate and excitation, and that's when we start getting autonomic instability, seizure activity, potentially death. What about withdrawal from opiates? So hypertension, tachycardia, dilated pupils, increased bowel sounds, vomiting, diarrhea, sweating, piloerection, yawning. This is going to make you feel like you want to die. It's going to make you feel like it is going to kill you. But unfortunately for you, it is not going to kill you. Now, theoretically, you could have GI symptoms down where you end up getting hypokalemia or electrolyte issue that causes a dysrhythmia. But in general, opiate withdrawal really is not going to be life-threatening. It just makes you feel that way. How do we treat it? We talk a lot about supportive care, symptomatic treatment, antiemetics, IV fluids, non-narcotic pain medicine if we're trying to avoid that. 
Some people talk about using clonidine here. Clonidine has some cross-reactivity at the opiate receptor. So clinically, it's been shown that it could help with opiate withdrawal. A, it will help with some of the hypertension that these people have, but also it kind of cross-reacts or kind of tickles that opiate receptor and may give them some relief. If you're looking for a good example of what clinical opiate withdrawal looks like, I would encourage you to see train spotting. Not T2, not this new one that just came out, the original train spotting. Great example of how people get into the heroin lifestyle and kind of what happens when you're trying to withdraw from it. The Basketball Diaries is also a nice example. All right, that's all I got. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining the EM Guidewire team for another edition of the Toxidome. Please check out emguidewire.com for a copy of our show notes regarding the Toxidrome review and stay tuned for more morsels of toxic goodness. From the J. Lee Garvey Studio here at Carolina's Medical Center, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. Seems he out.